The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Good day, everyone. I'm here with Christy Penley. Hey, hey. And Ben Sternkey. Hello, hello. Ben and I are wearing our black hoodies, and Christy is traditional Friday. Definitely, is that a monk that's a outfit? Blouse, right? It's it's a <laughs> pink dressy shirt and my pink headphones. Dressy yes. shirt, pink headphones. <laughs> Very different from Matt. You guys and look I's like twins. Monk attire. Yeah. I'm I'm going to do a workout right after we record this. Oh. So that's why okay. I have my my ratty black sweatshirt on. Yeah, so sporty Ben, sporty Ben. Uh, yeah, we are continuing our series here on um, things that we weren't trained to talk about in seminary. <laughs> I thought that's right. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say things that make you go. Hmm. Just things. Remember that, that? Well, I don't know. I mean, when yeah. I graduated seminary fifteen years ago, I mean, I spent a third of my time studying Greek and Hebrew, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I was told. If you just if you just know the original languages, you'll be able to answer every question you'll find in pastoral ministry. And I have found that, it's all that, in the is, Bible. that is not true. <laughs> it's not all in the Bible, Matt? Uh, well, there's a lot of things in the Bible. I love uh, the B-I-B-L-E, but I, finding things like, for instance, today we have Andrew mm-hmm. uh, Whited and Samuel Perry on to talk about their book on Christian nationalism. I, yeah. That wasn't covered. Nope. And homiletics. No, we came, no. We came up with that one after the Bible. After the canon was closed, we came up with that one. <laughs> but if yeah. you're a white pastor or a white churchgoer in America, you have probably encountered Christian nationalism, <clears throat> and you don't know what it is, <laughs> or how it happened, or what we did to do about it. Yeah. Um, so or anyway. Why, the, yeah, anyway. There's lots, <clears throat> lots to think about there, lots to, uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of um, a lot of pastors that I know, uh, they they have, and probably a lot of pe- a lot of uh, uh, people listening to this podcast, they probably are uncomfortable with it, um, but uh, are confused oftentimes by um, the fact that maybe so many of their other family members or other uh, people that they go to church with 
aren't uncomfortable with it, that they actually think this is part of what it means to be a Christian in the USA and that you're, there's something wrong with you if you're not excited about Christian nationalism. So there's a lot of confusion out there, a lot of help needed, I think, for us to parse these things um, in our day and age. Yeah. Is this a question for you where you live, Christy? Oh, yeah. Oh, I think it's a question for everyone, like mm. in America, especially uh, America. that with all that's happened and gone down in the last year. So, mm. um, yeah, these guys are smart and they know their stuff. And I felt like I learned, I learned just by listening to them and asking them questions is good. Yeah. These, these guys are uh, Christians, but they're also sociologists. So they take data and research and chart and track and make sense of data. And trends, and so there's some surprising things they find in the data about Christian nationalism, and maybe some less surprising things. So we probably should uh, close our yappers. I'll speak for myself. I'm going to close my yapper, and we'll uh, <laughs> listen to uh, Sam and Andrew. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, gird up your ear holes. Hey, I'm joined on the Gravity Leadership Podcast by Christy Penley. Hey, how are you, CP? I'm so good. I'm glad to be here. You got two sick, you got two sick kids, though. They are. They're downstairs on the couch. We did the COVID test, and we are crossing yeah. fingers that it is negative. Yeah. Well, here's what's amazing. When my kids are sick, I put them in front of the television. When your kids are sick, you're like, do some math homework. I'll be back in an hour. I did. I'm that mom. What in the world? Well, you're a rock star. You're awesome, CP. All right, we're joined today uh, by Drs. Andrew Whited and Dr. Samuel Perry. They are both associate professors of sociology and religious studies. Um, Samuel is at the University of Oklahoma, and Andrew is at uh, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Hey, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Um, real quick, uh, you we're here because y'all wrote a book, Taking America Back for God. And that's what this podcast is about. We're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, no, <laughs> this is really relevant to our, our world today, especially for Christians who live in America. Um, and the subtitle is Christian Nationalism in the United States. Uh, I want to hear about um, this book. But first, how did you guys meet and how did you decide to write this book together? Sam, maybe uh, you could start and just tell us from your perspective. Sure. I think Andrew and I had uh, corresponded via email and just had some common interests years prior, uh, before we ever decided to write a book. We'd been collaborating on other things, or at least thinking about other things to work on together. Where um, I think we we're both studying religion and families, and uh, we uh, we started playing around with some data. That's how a lot of our projects, our collaborative projects, start with just kind of digging into some data and seeing what's there. Hmm. And uh, we got a hold of some data and had these funny variables uh, and measures that had to do with people's thoughts about uh, the role religion has in the public square, uh, whether or not, uh, whether or not Americans feel like uh, the, the success of the United States is part of God's plan or that, uh, or whether the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. And we thought surely these, these, uh, these variables or these measures are, are tied to some kind of a political conservative worldview or some kind of attitudes about race or gender or sexuality. And we found that uh, once combined together, that they had this powerful influence on Americans' political attitudes and their behaviors. And we said, we got to dig into this further. And so mm. I think it started with issues of 
sexuality of, of uh, Americans' attitudes towards maybe civil unions and same-sex marriage. And then we also got into issues of racial boundaries, uh, interracial marriage, transracial adoption. And that was the one that was actually kind of interesting for us and, and I think really propelled us to explore this further because all of our questions that we have in these data sets that we've been exploring, they're, they're ostensibly race neutral. They have nothing to do with race. They don't ask about race. They don't ask about like white people or black people. They just ask about religion in America. And yet it's, it's one of the most powerful predictors of Americans' racial attitudes, their attitudes towards immigration, their attitudes towards Muslims, their attitudes towards African-Americans and policing, all of these things. And so we wanted to dig into that to find out uh, why, why on earth would these seemingly race-neutral religious questions have such a powerful influence on Americans' racial attitudes? And that really is, uh, we, we started to look into that with Trump, uh, support for Trump and support for all of the things that Trump has been about the last four or five years. And, and, uh, that got us going. Yeah. Andrew, what was it for you? What was the, uh, the data, the data set that really captured your heart and made you want to write this book with Sam? Yeah. I, you know, Sam, uh, this, I have the same memories. It was the Baylor religion survey, the 2007 wave. So that's where I went to grad school. So we had access to it pretty early on. And so Sam and I, we might've even worked on, I think our first paper together was with that data set, but using different questions. And just like he said, we looked at those um, six measures together and our first paper was on attitudes towards um, civil unions and same-sex marriage. And then like Sam said, we did a couple on race and it was at that point, Sam was like, man, I think we're tapping into something that is a little more powerful. It's not just kind of this, sometimes in, in our field, you, you may have a, a measure of interest that explains one little thing. But it was at that point, we were like, I think this is something bigger. And so as we started digging into it more, um, whatever you know you were interested in or anything having to do with how Americans see the world, there's very few that this doesn't help us understand. And so, yeah, we just started writing papers. And once we had you know, four or five peer reviewed articles on it. Um, we were like, we really need to put this into a book and just put it all together in one place and write for a broader audience, not just for, you know, our, the five people in our subfield who might read it. Um, but that this, this is really going to help explain something. And, and I think, you know, we're excited to continue to unpack this with you all and others where, you know, if you want to understand religion and how it relates to American life, um, you know, we can look at how often you attend church or what religious tradition you're a part of. And that tells us something. But what we find over and over and in our book is that um, how much you want to see Christianity or at least this special, this particular type of Christianity privileged in the public sphere, that it should be kind of over and above other religious groups or traditions. Um, that is something completely different than personal religiosity. And I think that's where it really gets interesting um, is that we're not just talking about religious people. Um, you're going to have religious people that reject Christian nationalism and you're going to have religious people that accept it and they look completely different. And that I think is what fascinates us endlessly. And we're just glad that other people are fascinated by it too. Yeah. It's kind of hard not to be interested in it right now. I mean, we're, we're recording this on in the shadow of January 6th, where, um, you know, the, maybe the enduring image that I, I'm thinking of as I'm talking to you guys right now is a, a man covered in face paint and animal hides with horns on his head, praying a prayer that I would have heard at a, at a revival meeting, uh, mixing in some shaman language. 
and a bunch of people that seem like they know how to pray, like at the charismatic evangelical churches I've been to, amening and Lord Jesusing him. And and uh, and I'm I'm watching this unfold, and I'm thinking, how did it how did it happen that the how did this happen? Because I was taught like beware of syncretism and watch out, right? Watch out for the 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 gospel being polluted and diluted, and it was just so surreal. And so uh, you guys may be the only experts I know about this. So uh, Christy and I want to pick your brains just about maybe first of all defining Christian nationalism, and then maybe applying some of the things you learned to how do we make sense of what we're experiencing today. Um, yeah. So, so how would maybe Sam? What give us the quick and uh, easy? What is what is Christian nationalism, and how did it? How did that definition emerge for you as you did your research? Yeah, I think it it, it uh, really emerged inductively as we were trying to explore what exactly do we have here. I mean, I think in our, even in our early studies where we were exploring this concept of Christian nationalism, we really didn't quite know what we were dealing with in 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 uh, in um, trying to figure out the contours of this belief system. Uh, what do we call it? Uh, how is it operating? How does it function for people? Um, I think at this point, I'm comfortable talking about Christian nationalism in, in, in two ways. Uh, one of them is, is one of them is something that drives people in another uh, way is something that people that it doesn't necessarily drive, they use and leverage for their, their own purposes. And so in, in some ways, Christian nationalism is this cultural framework, this ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of American civic life with a, a certain kind of Christianity. And I always put an asterisk by that, that word Christianity, because I don't, I don't mean uh, assent to like Orthodox creeds or following Jesus uh, as a disciple of Christ. I, I have, I, you know, that has almost nothing to do with it. Hmm. Um, I mean, a certain kind of Christianity as culture, right? Like, um, Christianity as a as a, a dog whistle that means people like us, uh, and so it's a fusion of that kind of Christianity with uh, American civic life, and that can drive people, that can motivate people to to see the world in a certain way of us versus them, and and good guys versus bad guys in a way that justifies all kinds of violence and and extremism. Um, another in another sense, though. Christian nationalism also is a language, it, and it provides kind of, or if you a technical word would be a discourse, right? Like it's it's a it's a set of linguistic tools, uh, like that dog whistle phrase, right? Like it's 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 something that I don't think Donald Trump is actually motivated by Christian nationalism, because I don't think he gives a crap. I, I don't think he really cares, honestly. Like I think for Donald Trump, Christian nationalism is a language that he uses to leverage and to signal to certain people, "I'm your guy, follow me, I got your back." We'll do this together. Um, and so without being motivated by Christian nationalist ideology, he's able to leverage that set of linguistic tools mm. to be able to rally people around him. And both were on display uh, and both have been on display, both people who are motivated by this to do horrible things and the people who are pulling the strings and using that kind of language to uh, accomplish their political purposes. Mm. Yeah, Christy, as you listen to this, what are you what are you thinking about? Because I know you've been a Christian much longer than I. You're much holier than I am. Like, what are you thinking about this from just like growing up, or even your experience now as a pastor at a church? Yeah, well, you know, as you we were talking, Sam, I had a question for you. That sure. um, you know, this past summer when George Floyd died, um, my mentor basically looked at me, who, who's a black woman, seventy five years old, and said, uh, "You're racist." And I cried and, and she said, and I'm racist too. 
And there was a place there that I, I like, it, it's in us. We have to be aware. We have to have eyes to see and be self-aware of where are we seeing this? Like in our own lives, in our own families, in our own churches. And, and the, the same question here for Christian nationalism, where do we see it? It, like, do we have, because a lot of times I think, I mean, I hear you talk and I'm like, oh, that's not me. <laughs> and then I think, but, but where is it me? What, what, what language am I using? What uh, terminology am I using? How am I communicating about whatever the thing is? And it's coming out sideways, um, either in my life or in our family or in our church. And I'm wondering, like, can you speak to that at all? Do you see that? Is that parallel correct? Right, sure. Uh, you know what? Um, what I what I try to tell people when people ask me, like people don't have surveys to distribute to their friends and ask them, like, where do you fall on our little Christian nationalism scale? I mean, it's just not <laughs> doesn't happen that way in conversation, nor should it. Um, but when I when I try to help people understand what Christian nationalism looks like in the wild and how this has kind of infiltrated our conversations mm-hmm. and our churches, I, I I usually hit on two things or try to help them see two things. If if somebody is talking about Christianity. And it makes it makes more sense as a as a culture than as a person, right? Like if 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 my allegiance as a Christian seems like it's more to a culture, a set of like principles or values or morals rather than a person, right? Like I I don't care about introducing people to Jesus. I care about introducing them or converting them to my culture, my way of thinking and doing things. And that's a, that's probably an indicator that there's a there's a there's a mixture of white middle class American individualism mixed up with Christianity, and that's really what I'm trying to shuttle into people's lives. Um, the next indicator would be us versus them kind of thinking. When I start to look at people who who are not Christians, not as an us for them, I and mean, I'm a Christian, I identify as a Christian, and 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 uh, am active in my church, and and uh, I want to model the kind of um, priorities that I think Jesus would have modeled. He seems to be the kind of uh, his orientation to people who didn't have a relationship with him was a, was a, a me for you, my sacrifice for you, right. To love you and extend myself to serve you. Uh, If my orientation to the outside world, people who are not Christians and don't consider themselves, that is, is not me for you, but it's me against you, right? Like you secular atheist infidels who are trying to take what's mine. Uh, and I've got to I've got to wrestle that back. Otherwise, God loses. <laughs> uh, then I think it's an indicator that I I have somehow exchanged the Christianity of Jesus for some kind of American culture war yeah. Christianism, right? Like it's not Christianity; it's Christianism. It's it's some kind of uh, Christian nationalism is what we what we call it. But I think mm. does that does that help? I mean, it kind yeah. of and you can see that all over, of course, our, our Christian culture, and that's you know. Uh, I think that's kind of what we're trying to identify. Yeah. Andrew, if you could speak to uh, one of the places that is really scary that I see this is even in our elementary schools, Mm. right? I I, I hear little kids, I go and pick up my kids and they're all like all outside. And I hear like, even after last week and what happened and the way that they talk about it, um, can you speak to even kind of what that looks like in kid life? And, and as parents, what is it? How do we, parent that? How, how do we help them, you know, have clear picture of who the real hope of the world is, right? Um, being Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, I'll try. I mean, as an academic <laughs> and a sociologist, I always want to know well, what, what data do I have to speak to this? So I think a lot of what I'm 
um, encouraged by and interested in is um, religious leaders or faith leaders too, starting to wrestle with this and ask those exact questions. Yeah. Because it is a part of discipleship, um, you know, for adults, but especially on down. And and the messages that we have been given and are giving um, to the next generation. Um, and so, you know, part of the work, you know, that Sam and I and, and other colleagues do is, is just looking at, um, you know, demographic changes in, in Christianity and religious life in the U S and, and all those things. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there has been, and there will continue to be a reckoning with young people and the Christian church because of, of what they see as a disconnect that Sam kind of identified and that, you know, you're talking about where um, taught one thing about sacrifice um, and, and enemy love and all of those things. And then that we need to put the right people in positions of power and ensure that they take care of us. And it's about taking care of our you know desires and needs hmm. that'll continue to happen. Um but yeah, I think, you know, for, for young kids, you know, it's probably like with anything. Um, I was watching uh, uh, Jamar Tisby speak. And so his work on uh, racism in the church, I think, is so helpful and is such a guide for, um, you know, academics kind of working in these areas. And he was talking about how, um, you know, talking about race with young kids, it should happen early and often. And isn't just one sit down like conversation, but it's an ongoing conversation. Just thinking about, you know, maybe for my uh, fourth grade daughter, looking at the Capitol insurrection, just helping her understand that, you know, these are people that believe that they have the right to do this, but is that, should they be able to, and, and thinking about that and seeing across, you know, what does that mean? Um and so, you know, doing it early and often in a continuing conversation. Um, and Jamar Tisby was funny too, because he was saying, you know, it's kind of like the sex talk. It doesn't just happen once, it's in relationship. <laughs> and so I think with Christian nationalism, um, which really does overlap a lot with discussing racial um, inequality and, and racism within the American church, I think those things are um, really intertwined. Um, yeah, it's going to have to be an ongoing conversation. I'm talking with with young kids and I don't have the answers for that, but I'm hopeful that others that are skilled in that will see hopefully this work and know that there's a need here. Yeah. Um, and pastors are saying, you know, we have our congregants for one hour on Sundays, but then they're watching, you know, news media for hours every night that are telling them something very different. And so what is discipling them? What is forming them? And so I think all of these conversations um, will hopefully continue to happen and experts in those areas will be able to show, you know, at least me or me and Sam the way too on how best to do this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Ongoing conversation. So good. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. Yeah, so I, I hear, just to maybe reset and recap, I hear uh, xenophobia, kind of an us versus them, 
this desire for power, um, this desire for real clear boundaries between me and you or us and them. Um, another thing you talk about in your book is kind of this authoritarianism. Um, what, what is the appeal of that, and why is that so closely connected to Christian nationalism? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, in the book, we really follow this outline of, of Christian nationalism worships at the Holy Trinity, worships the Holy Trinity of power, power, boundaries, and order. Uh, that they, they mm. value uh, political power and cultural power, that they want clear boundaries between us and them, and they want this kind of um, they want to preserve a certain kind of social order that really doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Christianity, but is more about traditional, um, you know, social roles and divisions and things that they would like to see sanctified and enshrined. Uh, authoritarianism is, is a means of, of maintaining that kind of control. Hmm. Uh, and so, and that goes along with the boundaries of who's, who, who, who gets the freedom to move about and do what they want and who needs to be controlled. Yeah. Uh, and that's where authoritarianism exercises its uh, power. And so one of the things actually, uh, you know, in, in, in hindsight, uh, we go into this in the book, but uh, we've collected so much data, done so much exploring, we've seen so much on display in the last year and a half since finishing the book. Uh, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to go to paperback, but it would just double the book size because we 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 have so much more evidence by way of the of the way Christian nationalism seems to express itself not only in authoritarianism, but authoritarian violence and justifying authoritarian mm -hmm. violence. Um, one of the leading predictors that we see Americans embrace this kind of worldview that sees violence as inevitable and in some ways good is Christian nationalism. So mm -hmm. um, who, who are going to be the Americans who are most likely to resist any kind of restrictions on gun control? Well, it's, it's the white Christian nationalists that we see. It's Who's more likely to be skeptical that police ever cross any boundaries when it comes to appropriate use of force that they uh, may um, that they that they may uh, unlawfully treat uh, or abuse people of color? Christian nationalists up and down deny that they say it's a media fabrication. That's not going on. Police treat black and white Americans equally. Uh, they're pro-capital punishment, pro uh, pro uh, judges cracking down on troublemakers. Uh, pro-military, uh, right? Like, and yeah. so all of these kind of indicators hmm. of of Americans being more of the opinion that you know what deviance needs to be controlled, however, however, by any means possible. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I and I think what we what we saw recently in January sixth, and I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about this is a is a is a, a willingness to justify by any means necessary, right? Yeah. Like if I feel like something is has uh, has gone wrong and somebody has taken what's mine or what's ours or what's rightfully God's, uh, then uh, then if, if I have to take arms, if I have to hurt people, if I have to mob uh, mob the capital, um, and that's justified. Andrew, did you have anything to add? Well, yeah, just with what you're saying, you know, something that um, a colleague and, and sort of a mentor for us, Phil Gorski, talks about, and we cite this in our book, mm -hmm. is with Christian nationalism, they really draw on an Old Testament narrative. And so as Sam's talking about the us versus them and the boundaries and the tribalism, um, they really draw on this type of maintaining tribal purity and forcefully taking the, the, you know, the land or whether it's real or metaphorical or metaphor, um, what is the outsiders are holding. And if we have to utilize violence to do that, we, we can and should. And, and so the, I guess you could say the God of the Old Testament, 
um, that will sanctify violence and, and say, use that if you need to. Um, you know, as Sam's talking, that's what, you know, is coming to mind for me too, where sure. um, we talk about January 6th or we look at Trump, uh, you know, last summer clearing Lafayette Square of protesters with tear gas and, and police and then, you know, standing in front of just that authoritarianism that I will do what I have to do um, to do whatever I want to do um, yes. is, is just part and parcel with, with this whole um, cultural framework. Yeah. Yes. So maybe, maybe then turning the focus to January 6th, cause we're recording this in between January 6th and in the inauguration. Um, and I know that we're all praying fervently that we don't see a repeat or something worse happen. But um, I think a lot of Americans were shocked. I was talking to Christy beforehand. Um, Christy, will you share that anecdote just about, um, how surprised or shocked or stunned your family was? Yeah. Well, I was in class all day. So I was on a zoom call from like eight to five. And so my phone was blowing up. I was getting all these texts and finally, I finally looked at it and they were like, look at the news. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I of course read some articles and my dad had called and my dad, um, he, he's 75 year old man, white male. Um, and, he said, this is one of the saddest days of my life. And I was like, really? And he put it right up there with divorce and being diagnosed with the disease. And, and it was, he just could not believe um, what was happening. And, um, and it was, it's just interesting because you see both sides of people just being like shocked. And then other people saying, we saw signs of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so, yeah. um, that's what struck me about that, Chrissy, is that your, for your dad, it was like, oh my gosh, where did this come from? And I'm thinking about uh, Andrew and Sam, these two guys I follow on Twitter, and they're like, well, yeah. So, hey. I, right, this is, so I'm wondering, you guys, what did you see on January 6th that maybe confirmed the things that you already knew and fit your data sets? And then anything you saw on January 6th that took you by surprise or was maybe um, as, as stories emerge was outside of what your data would suggest about Christian nationalism. Yeah. Uh, I think the way that I was thinking about January 6th is that it was absolutely shocking, but not necessarily surprising. So seeing that happen, it, it should shock anybody. Um, but I wasn't necessarily surprised that this, you know, as we wrote in our book, um, and, and, you know, we kind of encourage each other as we're writing it, like, let's make sure we we say what we mean and, and say what we're going to say, not try to, you know, backpedal or anything. But as I look back, we could have been even more forceful in some of our arguments, especially at the end where we're talking about how with, with Christian nationalism and seeing um, the groups that were storming the Capitol and the insurrection, you know, praying before they go in there, or they're entering the doors and they're holding up Bibles or saying in Jesus name, and they have crosses that they're erecting, you know, And, uh, you know, we see all this symbolism wrapped up in it. And I wouldn't say that they're all just Christian nationalists, but Christian nationalism is a part of this kind of, you know, political theology that makes space for this type of extremism. Hmm. And, you know, it is what was ringing in my head, um, you know, that we had said and others is that it's absolutely a threat to a pluralistic democratic society where we share power and we have to compromise. Because if God says that a certain person should sit on the most powerful seat of, uh, you know, of power in the world, the presidency, um, who is to deny them that this group believes that God is saying Trump should be president. And so um, no matter what, even democracy, 
um, should fall by the wayside for what they believe God wants to see happen. Um, and so, I mean, thank God that it wasn't more um, violent than it already was. I mean, five people died, but the possibilities of death were were so much greater. And so um, it wasn't surprising, but it was absolutely shocking. And, and even watching some of the footage come out, um, you know, one of the uh, war correspondents for the New Yorker, you know, was recording on his phone, watching that yesterday. It's like 12 minutes of footage, but just astounding stuff. Um, but again, we know that Christian nationalism alongside, you know, other ideologies at play here really makes space for this type of, of violent extremism. We have to take it seriously, no matter no matter what, um, because it is a threat um, to those institutions and, and the sharing of power. So that's, you know, some of kind of the broader thoughts I had. How about yeah, you, Sam? Uh, yeah, you know, it, it combined a lot of the things that we're, we're observing in surveys on a, on a, on a mass hysteria kind of scale. So like when, when we're analyzing these surveys, I mean, you can imagine people taking these surveys, right? Like, and so people are doing these surveys and they're, they're at home on their computer, like clicking yes and agree and strongly disagree and all those things, or they're at home, like writing responses to these surveys that we're distributing. They're not in a mob at the time. Right. And so you, so we're observing these really strong correlations and associations between Christian nationalist ideology and the, and the kinds of attitudes and political behaviors that we're seeing. Well, imagine what happens when you, you get a group of people together uh, who are pissed off and they are, and they're, and they're riled up because just this group, this, uh, what we sociologists call collective effervescence, right? They're really (laughs) transcending themselves as individuals at this time in the middle of a mob, like you do at a football game or or rave or something. Yeah. You just completely lost yourself. And so imagine the things we're observing in Christian nationalism on these surveys, uh, jacked up with this kind of hysteria of, of Trump being and leading them and, uh, rallying them together and them getting worked up. Plus this kind of like litany of lies that they have been fed about, uh, the corruption of the, 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 the voting process and, and, and all of these things. And so like Andrew's saying, I mean, it was just unreal to be, I think he tweeted about like, uh, and that was the first time I thought about this is we're, we're, it's like sitting through nine 11, mm. a kind of situation where this is a historical thing. People are already referring to one six, like, you know, this, you know, what were you doing during during one six when when a when a mob of people stormed the Capitol and as and as uh, videos have been released, progressive, or, you know, over the last few days and pictures, and you're just getting stories of the prayer and and these kinds of like you're getting the quotes. I mean, it just becomes all the more um, shocking. And you know, it's just been uh, it just been past two weeks have just been uh, living in a another time almost. It's just crazy. Yes, like a liminal space where you know yeah. you know this doesn't happen all the time. There, right. there, there is. Uh, I, I want to actually love reading sociological studies, but we've been living in this weird space for a while, where uh, the news cycle has been so uh, compressed, <laughs> and, and uh, like outrageous things happen all the time. And so then, uh, I just wonder how much more we can handle, you know, like in our in our collective character. Uh, but maybe, uh, maybe Andrew, just to pivot um, back to your book, one of the things that surprised me mm-hmm. was I, I expected to see a really, really high correlation between the 81%, right? This 81% number of, of like white evangelicals that voted for Donald Trump and Christian nationalism. 
But your data actually suggests something different. And I was struck by that because it, it, it pressed against some of my biases and prejudices. And I wonder if, if you could speak to what, what's wrong with just equating the 81% with Christian nationalism. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one thing that we try to do in the book and that we we hope helps um, some understanding of, of how evangelicalism, especially or white evangelicalism, especially is related to politics in the current moment, is that um, once we account for Christian nationalism, um, the differences between evangelicals or white evangelicals and other religious groups and even non-religious people um, disappear. And so it isn't necessarily evangelicalism. Um in and of itself, that is is the driving force. It's this cultural framework of Christian nationalism that, granted, is a big part of white evangelicalism. You know, mm-hmm. so close to eighty percent of white evangelicals, you know, are either accommodators or ambassadors, um, as we talk about them in the book. People that are friendly or strongly embracing Christian nationalism. Hmm. So, I think what's helpful is that it helps put the eighty-one percent who voted for Trump in perspective. Um, because we, when you see evangelicals who um, reject or resist sentence. Christian nationalism, <laughs> um, they <laughs> look much different than their fellow evangelicals do um, who strongly embrace it. And so in that sense, Christian nationalism is really helpful to make sense of you know, who's voting for Trump and why. Because if we have a white Catholic um, or uh, you know, a mainline Protestant who strongly embraces Christian nationalism, they're yeah. going to be um, much more likely to also vote for Trump and look a lot like evangelicals than embrace Christian nationalism than their fellow co-religionists who reject or resist it. Yeah. Hey, maybe to wrap up, Sam and Andrew, a lot of our listeners maybe don't identify with some of the things you're talking about as Christian nationalism, but almost every one of us goes to church with somebody who's like this or has a family member, a close family member, a spouse, a kid, a mom, a dad, who maybe has elements of this. And I, I've, Christy and I talk to people all the time that are uh, beside themselves. feels like they don't know how to reach them or how to help them. Um, and people are just shouting fake news at each other. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are some things that we can do as Christians who care about the gospel and about faithfulness to Jesus to take some responsibility as white Christians for this Christian nationalism thing? And especially maybe helping loved ones or people we know that are, that are caught up in it? Yeah. So I, you know, I think uh, the two diagnostic questions I I asked at the beginning are are what I often go to in my, in my own uh, kind of thought process of where, where am I standing in all of this? To what extent am I talking about Christianity? Not so much as allegiance to a, a person, but allegiance to some kind of set of cultural values or morals or ethics that I, that I think other people need to embrace regardless of whether or not they embrace Jesus. Uh, you know, like that, I, that I think I don't really care so much if you, if you like or embrace or love or trust Jesus, I just want you to be like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that should be a red flag, right? Like it should be a, for, for any Christian, that should be a, a problem. What your, your goal is, uh, I assume, uh, understanding the new Testament would be, uh, calling, uh, people to follow in discipleship, uh, with, uh, Jesus. Uh, and that involves taking up your cross. That would be another diagnostic, right? Christian nationalism knows no, it knows no taking up the cross. It, it rejects the cross as weakness. Yeah. It rejects the cross as, uh, as losing, right? We don't lose, mm. we win. We're, we're conquerors. <laughs> and so mm. uh, to what extent is the kind of Christianity that I've embraced, one that, that um, 
really needs needs victory here and now in this life rather mm-hmm. than trusting in faith that that uh, God is in control and I can be obedient and and walk faithfully. Um, I think to what extent uh, is my is uh, and asking asking as a diagnostic, you know, it sounds like you see. I was, I'm imagining a conversation with my relative or friend in my Bible study or whatever. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you see non Christians as the enemy, right? Like they're trying to take something that rightfully belongs to you, or they're trying to ruin something that you feel like you own, or 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 whatever. Rather than seeing them as people that Jesus died for and loves, and and uh, and how would you extend service to those people? You know, how do you how do you be Christ to that person? Um, I, you know, I think in, in, in to, to, to what extent, I mean, I think I, I often think about this when I'm thinking about Eric Metaxas or I'm thinking of some uh, Robert Jeffers, you know, or somebody yeah. who I think is really uh, an ambassador of Christian nationalism, just a, an archetype of that. Um, I think, you know, how do you see Jesus and what you say and, and do? Because I, I feel like the only the constant verse that I see get quoted by these kinds of folks is Jesus expelling the money changers with whips. Uh, that's like the favorite verse, you know, like Jesus getting riled up and beating up people in the market and expelling money changers, but not the Jesus who died for people, not the Jesus who healed, not the Jesus who, who loved his enemies. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I, I, like, it sounds cliche to, to call people back to, to following Christ, but I, I think if I can keep Jesus in front and, and remind them, this is who you serve. This is who you say you want to be like, uh, don't you see the difference? Don't you see the, the don't you see the the direction that this has pulled you in? And I think that's what we tried to do with the book uh, mm-hmm. is to try to show like, look, we're, we're not saying you can't be like, we, we get this, we get this question a lot and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but we get the question about like, Oh, are you saying I can't be a, a good citizen? I can't be a patriot. Uh, and and in, in our minds, there's a difference between patriotism that a Christian is called to being a good neighbor, loving your neighbors, being a good citizen, honoring the the, the authority and following laws uh, the earliest Christians were persecuted for being bad citizens. Roman Romans persecuted them and said, you guys are bad citizens because you don't worship the empire or the emperor. And Christians said, no, we're the best citizens. We're the ones you want in your city. We should be that. Um, and yet we shouldn't be storming the Capitol <laughs> to, to, to come from Vince's head uh, and, uh, and, and Pelosi's head. I mean, how scary. But I, I think so just to bring it back, I think calling people to, to really follow Christ in a sincere way. The Christ of the, of the gospels, not the Christ of the, the, the Christ of two verses and expelling the money changers from the, the temple. Yeah. So good. That is so good. Andrew, what would you add? Well, I think, yeah, I think Sam um, really kind of identified a lot of, of what we think and feel. And, and I think just, you know, coming out of, or, you know, being in and growing up around white evangelicalism um, and being warned of, you know, the, the philosophies of this world and being careful to not be taken away. I think we really have to realize that within this tradition, Christian nationalism was um, so pernicious because it seemed so close to what um, we thought Christianity was. And so, you know, at the beginning of the book, we, we quote uh, Colossians 2.8, where, um, you know, Paul's telling them not to be taken away by worldly philosophies that depend on human tradition. And, and you know, I think a lot of that is power. Is it power over other people or is it power through service and, and giving up your life and dying? And, and that I think, um, you know, as Sam talked about so well, is um, power over other people. That's an affront to the gospel. And that isn't, um, you know, what Jesus did to show the way. And so 
Um, those are things that I continually think about or for me try to keep keep in mind um, when wrestling with Christian nationalism versus, as Sam said, a Christianity that should, you know, be um, a blessing to, to the social space and to our civic culture. Not necessarily that we dominate it, but that we um, infuse it with, with love and, and, you know, brotherly and sisterly um, love. So, yeah. Christy, what did you hear there? What, what struck you in that response? Well, you know, actually, as both of them are talking, you know, we talk a lot with Gravity Leadership about grace and truth. And, 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 and I see that here. Asking questions to the person who, who um, you're like, I see a little bit of this. Is this how you're seeing? Are you seeing them as enemies? You're not seeing them as people. You know that type of thing. And what does it look like to be Jesus, the, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the gospel, um, to everyone around us in our communities, uh, in our you know in our neighborhoods? It's in our world. Mm. Yeah. Well, Andrew and Sam, thanks for spending time with us today. Uh, you guys are both on Twitter. I know. Um, where else? Is there anywhere else people can interact with you online? We'll put your Twitter handles in the bio. Anything else we should know about how to maybe read what you're doing or interact with you? I'm just Twitter. Yeah. Just Twitter. Twitter, I think, is the best way that we kind of keep the Christian nationalism research coming. So, well, who knows what's trending now? We've been off Twitter for 40 minutes. Uh, Uh, Right. (laughs) Both of you, thanks for the work you're doing. And I just want to commend this book, Taking Back America for God. It's it's not just a slamming on white Christians, but really your love for Jesus and for the gospel and for actually uh, having a faithful witness to the gospel, I think, comes through in every chapter of this book. Uh, And so thanks for making data so enjoyable yes yes <laughs> that's, relevant. that's great relevant. that so, is uh, thank you, you so much yeah thank you thanks for joining us for this episode of the gravity leadership podcast our show is produced by ben sternke matt tebby and ben hardman aaron sternke does our mixing and mastering you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 